Happy New Year's Eve. Who knows, Jesus might come back before New Year, so Happy New Year, Mike. I, I just want to take a moment, because it's been a while since I've, uh, actually it's been two years since I've been in this pulpit um, with a sermon uh, for you. I just wanted to share, um, really briefly, my heart and Shannon's heart for you folks as a church. Um, since I was last in this pulpit, uh, graduated from the Pastors College in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you. Yes. There is a diploma I did pass, believe it or not, for those of you who know me. Um, and in the last year and a half, uh, I've been on staff at the church with a, serving along the admin team and on uh, the pastoral team as a pastoral resident. And this has always been a dear place for me. This has always been my home in one way or another since uh, my family first came into the church in 1994. And... Um, even just the last year and a half as we continued to be led and continue to lead in various um, areas. IMAG team, community group meets in our home for college students uh, and young adults. And uh, this is a dear place where the Lord delights to dwell. He delights to dwell among his people. And while we are a hospital for the sin sick, we should all self-identify with that. The Lord's grace is abundant here. You are a joy to lead. You are a joy to serve. Um, and your pastors, I've gotten a window as to the joy that you give your pastors, the joy that you give your elders. You, you are a joy to lead. And so I just wanted to uh, express my thankfulness to you. Uh, I, I actually this week went through, I went back to the list of donors that, you know, many of you prayed and supported us and encouraged us in other ways, but, but some of you gave. And I, I was freshly grateful by the young college student guys that were on that list, the pastors and wives that gave to us, the, the couples, the older couples, the younger couples, even cherished saints whom the sun once kissed, people like Nancy Cordry, I saw her on that list. Just the diverse, abounding grace that exists in this church. Uh, it's a joy to be here. And it's a privilege to bring God's word to you. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're going to finish chapter 2, starting in verse 39. I read a news story this week that Spirit Airlines, you might have seen this, Spirit Airlines laid off an employee at the Philadelphia airport. And this, is, this was on national news. And it's unfortunate that the reason this person is now looking for work, it's nationally newsworthy. Those of you who are new, raise your hands. In a way, I hope that was you. But I also hope it wasn't you in, 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 a, in a specific way. Um, because you're about to be at a sermon illustration. So, and you were just trying to do your job. Uh, what happened last week was that a six-year-old boy named Casper needed to fly from Philadelphia to see his grandma in Florida for Christmas. And this gate agent, seeking to be helpful, escorted little Casper to the Spirit Airlines flight to Orlando and helped him get aboard. He needed to get to Florida. The only thing is, Casper's grandmother, Maria, was waiting for him at the Fort Myers airport in southeast Florida, yes. And that's on the other side of the state for you geography heads. And uh, all Maria knew 
was that his bags did arrive to Fort Myers, but there was no Casper. Maria recounted this this week to Fox 35 News. She said, I said to the gate agent, what do you mean he missed his flight? He checked in. This is his ticket. He was checked in by his mom. The lady at the airline goes, no, he missed his flight. He's not on this flight. I said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You have to find my grandson. Just imagine the panic going through Maria's mind at this point. And after the airline said they would try to find him, very reassuring, (laughs) Maria got a direct FaceTime call from Casper saying, hi, Grandma, no one's with me. Uh, I'm at the airport. Where are you, Grandma? Probably like holding a phone like this. Uh, And Maria then said, okay, what? Is anyone there wearing a uniform? Can you walk up to anyone wearing a uniform and, and have them tell you where you are? And so he found out he was in Orlando. So Maria got in her car and drove the three hours to pick him up at a very different airport. So the story ends well, except for the poor gate agent. Imagine the panic of losing your son Except, your son is the prophesied Messiah and Savior of the world. No offense to Casper, who Spirit Airlines themselves called, quote, a wonderful young man. That's very reassuring. Thank you, Spirit Airlines. The highest stakes discussion in any marriage of all time of where did you leave him last? Where did you see him last? Any marriage has ever experienced in the history of the world, highest stakes, a search that stretches over multiple days and many miles by foot. Well, it happened to Mary and Joseph 12 years after the first Christmas. Let's dive in. Luke 2, beginning in verse 39. And this is God's holy and authoritative word, his revelation to us. Verse 39 of Luke 2. And when... They had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. And asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, these are Jesus' first words, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know? that I must be in my father's house. And he did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth 
and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that we can call you Abba, Father, because you sent your son. May you glorify your son in us today. Jesus, may you be glorified. We thank you for humbly becoming poor. We thank you for being incarnated as a man and what that means for us. May you be glorified for humbling yourself. May we crown you with many crowns. Holy Spirit, may you exalt Christ in our eyes. Lord, stir us up that we might be able to focus and hear on what you have to say to your church. Glorify Christ. Speak, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, our passage is the only story in Scripture where we have a window into who Jesus was, not as an infant or a man in his 30s conducting his ministry, but as a kid. Why do we have this story and no others? It wasn't like the majority of his life where he was not healing, had no disciples, and no one knew his name was insignificant. In fact, the opposite. This boy, as we will see, was still the son of God, the long-awaited king of of heaven, the hope of the nations, yet the Son of Man, found in human form. And this rare window into the boyhood of Jesus is not given to us just to tell a neat story or to satisfy our curiosity. This isn't a reboot like young Sheldon. This account is not given to remind us of crazy things from our own childhood or parenting. This account is given to deepen our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as the year changes and we take stock of ourselves and think about the ways we want to grow, allow the Holy Spirit to take your eyes off yourself and onto your Savior. This passage will adjust maybe some wrong ideas we have about him, and it will call our hearts to greater affections for the one we are called to worship and to follow. My main point of this message, entitled The God Who Grew, the main point is we worship and follow a Jesus that grew, committed himself, and submitted himself for the glory of God. We worship and follow a Jesus that grew, committed himself, and submitted himself all for the glory of God. And we have this one story to describe and encapsulate who Jesus of Nazareth was as a person. A.T. Robertson says of this passage, Luke here gives us the only glimpse we have of the boy Jesus. 
with a boy's hunger for knowledge and yearning for future service. The boy who already had the consciousness of a peculiar relationship to God, his father, yet who went back to Nazareth in obedience to Joseph and Mary to toil at the carpenter's bench for 18 more years. No one who did not love and understand children could have so graphically pictured the boyhood of Jesus in this one short paragraph. And I'm glad, boys and girls, you're here too. And in this one short paragraph, we're going to see three qualities of Jesus that we see for the first time in this gospel. One is the growth of Jesus. The growth of Jesus. Now, I'm going to delay the thrill ride story. I'm going to delay the at my father's home alone version for a bit. We need to discuss right away what this passage reveals about the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And some of you theologians, and I hope we have many of those in our church, you might be concerned for a certain pastoral resident not to drift into heresy. And I think that's a very good concern. (laughs) Many in church history past have wrestled over the nature of who Christ was. And it is of central importance to us. And if it was not for this passage, we might be tempted to think, as Theodotus did in the second century, that Jesus must have been a normal man, but then given supernatural powers at his baptism when he was 30. That's when he became the son of God, according to him. We might be tempted to think, as the Gnostics did in the second century, that Jesus was God, but only appeared to be human, rejecting that God could be in human form. We might be tempted to think, as Apollinarius did in the fourth century, that sure, Jesus had a human body, but he had a fully divine mind, and thus, his soul could not experience human things. Well, maybe could experience certain things, but not be fully human. Or we might think, as Nestorius did in the 5th century, that the Son of God and the Jesus of Nazareth were two different people, united in one body. These are falling off points in church history. Well, we can safely assume that Mary herself, or someone close to Mary, is telling Luke this story. And under divine inspiration, Luke knows that this information is vital to include so that we do not go astray in seeking to understand this great mystery, this mystery that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We know, we said before, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that God does not change in any way. That's central to his nature. So, Jesus Christ grew at a point in history when he stepped into time He grew without changing who he was, the Son of God in human flesh. Luke bookends this passage with summary sentences about the growth of the boy Jesus. Look at verse 40. The child grew and became strong physically. And as we already knew from Christ coming as a baby, the word couldn't speak a word for a point in history. And he had to learn words. The sustainer of all things had to learn to feed himself. He had to develop muscle to tend to fields or swing a hammer, cut wood with his dad. Things that he was already at that time upholding by the word of his power. Isn't that insane to think about? He was filled with wisdom 
but through labor and hard work and study and, key, the help of the Holy Spirit. The favor of God was upon him, and Luke uses the same word for favor that he uses for grace. The specific favor of God, the Father, by the Holy Spirit, was growing the Son of Man. And let's peek over to the other bookends, to verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and favor. He didn't take shortcuts in human struggle, but he struggled while enjoying the favor of his Father. R. Kent Hughes says helpfully, the great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man, not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. And he did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to his Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions, complete with their inherent weakness. He was subject to the laws of nature, the laws of human development, and he does this quietly. In Egypt, and then in Nazareth, Nazareth, a little considered, often avoided corner of a seemingly insignificant nation occupied by a greater world power. He did not come down fully developed. He did not come down to a world capital and sit on the throne as he rightfully could. Consider once again the humility of Jesus. Though, as we see in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. But he humbled himself by becoming a servant being born in the likeness of men. And as Jesus grew physically, he also grew in intellectually, morally, and spiritually, all while not committing a sin. And we think of the suffering, tempted Christ while he was ministering, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, or on the cross. And rightfully so. That's where the emphasis of Scripture is. But Christian, consider every step of your life, every struggle to understand, every need for faith, every temptation, every challenge, every loneliness, every experience of a fallen world, every sorrow and trial, small and large. Church, your Savior knows how you feel. Not from afar, but because he walked that path before you. Do not let this comfort of the incarnation slip from your grasp. Hold on tightly to this. Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain. Joys and sorrows that I know so well, he knows them better. Yet his righteous steps give me hope Again, I will follow my Emmanuel. There is mystery here. 
because we will never experience what he experienced in his divinity. But his dependence on the Holy Spirit, and as we will see soon, his devotion to his Father, we can follow the path of Jesus the carpenter. Jesus likely memorized Proverbs 3. He memorized this scripture probably, written from a father to a son and fulfilled it so that he can give us the strength to obey it. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In verse 52, one other thing. In verse 52, Luke, with Mary in his ear and the Holy Spirit at his pen, uses some of the same terms to describe the boy Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.26. A boy whose miraculous birth meant that he would be dedicated to the Lord's service with favor from God to lead his people out of sin and hopelessness. We already know that Mary knew that story well, right, from her Magnificat. Her son's righteous steps gave her hope again. The growth and faithful obedience of Christ means that we can experience the favor of God through undeserved grace. He fulfilled this for us, and he won this for us. We must worship and follow our Emmanuel. Second, the commitment of Jesus. Now we're finally at the story that you've been waiting for so patiently. Now, we should note in verses 39 and in verse 41, the role of Jesus' earthly parents in his growth and exposure to the things of God. They followed everything in the law that the Lord commanded. They went to Jerusalem every year, every year as a family, to the feast of the Passover. They would sing those, song, those psalms of ascent that we read in our call to worship. This was not an easy journey. And it was one that many in this day would skip, those who had grown lukewarm in their faith. In fact, the custom only required the male head of the family to make the journey. But notice here that they all went together, man, wife, children, to commemorate the saving acts of God in the Exodus. And it wasn't only them. Verse 44 says they went with friends and relatives from their town in a time in history where it was not fashionable to engage in the ministry of showing up, when many lost their devotion to God because of their discouragement of their own oppression, their waiting for God, Joseph and Mary here are seeking to honor God and raise their children, Jesus included, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Jesus, think of this, Jesus could have received knowledge of the scriptures directly from his father. But for the son of man, this learning, this discovery of the God of Israel and his works and his character, this had to happen here through human means through training in the word, through meeting and making costly journeys and sacrifices, through gathering with the faithful remnant. Joseph and Mary are to be commended for their godly parenting. However, they had limits. 
They made mistakes. We are to find that their faithful parenting doesn't mean they're flawless or understood things perfectly. I mean, example A, they assumed Jesus was with his cousins in the other minivan. <laughs> they should have checked. They were wrong. And uh, verse 46 Half a week later, they've retraced their steps all the way back to the temple. And interesting how they didn't um, skip some of the rest stops on, on the way. Let's just start at the temple and work our way back. That's, well, that would be most likely, right? Well, no. 12-year-old Jesus is at the temple listening to the teachers and asking them questions. He isn't showing off. Though the favor of with God and of man was definitely at work here. He, Jesus is sharpening his mind. He's engaging. He is inquisitive. He is grasping more about God's people and their experience with their God, his father. He is getting to know with a human brain how his father has been with his people, how he has made promises to them, how he has been faithful to them. And Jesus has knowledge and wisdom well beyond his years, but he's humbly seeking for more. We have much to learn from others, even those with less capacity in certain things. That is the humble way, not to assume we have nothing to learn from someone. There is always more to learn in the word of God. And all are astonished. And Mary takes his son to task. Jesus Christ get over here. And this makes sense, right? This was, as predicted by Simeon, the, faithful, the, the, the painful sword pricks into Mary's heart have already begun. Joseph and Mary have been put through a lot. Jesus' answer here is not cold to his mother, nor disrespectful to his father, but it reveals his priority. We see the Christ child's grasp of his identity and his mission, his commitment to his father. He says, probably in a soft or squeaky voice, why were you looking for me? Verse 49, did you not know I must be in my father's house? I want to speak to the parents here briefly. You want to love, you want, well, you do love your kids. <laughs> you want your kids to trust, honor, and love God above all else, right? Okay. You want to see your children's love for God kindled, rekindled, and burn into flame, amen? Okay, do not be surprised then when a deep zeal for Christ leads your teens and adult children into places and spaces outside of your immediate reach. It doesn't always happen. I'm part of a ministry, the 2030 ministry right now, where we are seeking to continue to raise up the next generation in our local church, and by God's grace and favor to us and your work, a sizable chunk of the ministry is made up of people who have been raised in this church. The fruit is there, and it's amazing. But the love of the Father and the Spirit of God, that same love that compelled Christ to seek first the kingdom of God, should compel and is compelling and will compel your growing and grown children towards greater service, towards church planting, towards campus ministry, towards mission, towards building and strengthening his church in areas where you might see them less. And while this is hard, 
And yes, family is designed by God and is vitally important. Parents, do not be a hindrance towards your children worshiping and following their Lord wherever that might take them. Do not withhold your kids from things of their father because you want them to be around things of you. I was recently struck by a sovereign grace pastor in in a a sister church who has adult children of his own, considering in this season a call himself towards an opportunity overseas to strengthen churches and be a base for cross-cultural mission. And he shared wistfully about the tears he and his wife have already shed, considering what it would be like to potentially miss their first grandkids' birth or their first Christmas. Child of God, this is a call for all of us. Are we most at home in our father's house, about our father's business? This will be another theme in Luke. Family relationships, though a common grace, a mission field itself, family relationships, though a beautiful picture and means of gospel living, are secondary to the broader family of God. And as Jesus puts himself later in this gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, key here, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come of eternal life. Let us examine Jesus' first recorded words again closely. He says, literally, it is necessary for me to be in things of my father. The Greek word for must or it is necessary is an often repeated word in Luke, speaking of the plans of the father carried out by the son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the theme of what was compelling Christ will appear again and again. And it all points in one direction. Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 13, it is necessary for him to heal on the Sabbath. He must go on his way to die in Jerusalem. Luke 17, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Luke 19, he calls out to Zacchaeus, oh, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for it is necessary for me to stay at your house today. Luke 22, it was necessary for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. I tell, he, t- he says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. The risen Christ says, Luke 24, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Later in the chapter on the road to, to Emmaus, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is our Savior, church. The one compelled by, committed to his mission of being in the things of his Father. The plan before time that he might suffer Die, be raised, be the means of our salvation, and be the firstborn among many brothers, and that is us. We follow him and give glory to his name. And in resolution season, where we try to set our own musts and it is necessaries, there are many others in the book of Luke 
that must be informed by what Jesus did for us. Take your eyes off yourself and onto what Jesus fulfilled in the kingdom of God his Father. Lastly, the submission of Jesus. With all this said, Jesus did not stay in the temple that day, but he went home to be with his parents. Daryl Bach says, children were to be submissive, and yet Jesus' submission is worthy of note because of who he is. Jesus' piety is in this self-submission, is the point. And note, Luke makes the point that Mary and Joseph don't get it. They can't understand. They don't have the capacity at this point to grasp what Jesus is saying to them in verse 50. But right after, Jesus submits to their authority. He, He is the son of God. And they're just people. But they are his parents and spiritual heads at this time of his life. So he willingly goes back with them. Kids, hear this. Teens, especially. You probably have experienced times where you feel like your parents don't get it. They don't get you. They don't get what you're saying. They don't get the situation you're in. And sometimes that's true. Jesus here shows that you don't just submit to your parents when they fully understand you and the situation. You do it despite their weaknesses and limitations which you will see more of as you get older. Do you know why this isn't unjust? Because Jesus wasn't just submitted to his parents. He was submitted to his heavenly father. And submitting to his heavenly father, who knows all, meant he submitted to the authorities that his father placed in his life. So he obeyed and honored them. God doesn't call you kids, teens, just to blindly submit to parents simply because they're your parents, but because God has appointed them as your authorities for a period of time. And God, oh, trust this. This is so hard to believe, but it's true. God can be trusted to work through your parents who make mistakes, and God's commandments are always for our ultimate good. And not so fast, everyone else, right? This isn't just for the youth. This is for each and every one of us. The word here used for submit is the same used elsewhere in Scripture. It's a compound word for appointing, determining, devoting, placing yourself under. It's the command for church members towards their church elders. It's the command for wives towards their husbands. It's it's commanded for those even in authorities where they might not be believers. Towards superiors in our workplaces towards governments, rulers, and authorities. Oh, this goes against what we want. Earthly authorities are fallible and they're passing. But submitting to the authority of God's commandments, church, is always for our good, our flourishing, and for the spread of the gospel. Even when we've been burned by the failures of earthly leadership in the past, God is behind all of the authorities in our life. Their understanding is so limited. His is infinite. He calls us to be submitted to them and thus to the authorities he puts in our lives as long as they do not call us to sin against our Father. Scripture is clear. There are no, no shortcuts. 
we worship and follow our Savior in our submission. Contrary to what we might assume, submission preaches. Christ's submission preached that day. His humility, his devotion to his heavenly father. And this growth, this commitment, this submission is what Mary was pondering in her heart. Verse 51. This growth was to the glory of God his father. Our growth must be for the glory of God our father. And Mary came to a greater understanding later in life by God's grace. I want to leave you here with an exhortation of Spurgeon's for us to join her in pondering and treasuring Christ in our hearts. I'd like to invite the the band to come up as I finish. Spurgeon says, There was an exercise on the part of this blessed woman of three powers of her being. Her memory, she kept all these things. Her affections, she kept them in her heart. Her intellect, she pondered them. So that memory affection, and understanding were all exercised about the things which she had heard. Beloved, and that is you, remember what you have heard of our Lord Jesus and what he has done for you. Let your memory treasure up everything about Christ which you have either felt or known or believed and let your fond affections hold him fast forevermore. Love the person of your Lord. And if your understanding cannot comprehend, let your affections apprehend. And if your spirit cannot compass the Lord Jesus in the grasp of understanding, let it embrace him in the arms of affection. Lord Jesus, as we grow in stature and in years, Lord, may we grow in wisdom, knowledge, and love of our Savior in the grace and favor of Christ that you've won for us in your life, death, and resurrection. May our growth be for your glory. May our commitment be for your glory and your kingdom. May our submission be for your glory and your gospel. Oh, we love you, O Lord. What a Savior we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All glory be to Christ.